You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 318 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, in the last episode, we looked at the beginning of the fighting at Gettysburg on the morning of Wednesday, July 1st, 1863, between the Confederate infantry of Harry Heath's division and John Buford's Union cavalrymen there along the Chambersburg Pike, just northwest of town. The first contact between Heath's men and Buford's troopers came about 7.30 a.m. Archer's brigade, at the head of the Confederate column, after making contact with the enemy, shook out skirmishers, and before long both sides were popping away at each other, while a Confederate cannon deployed and added its booming voice to the mix. Heath had around 7,500 men in his division, supported by about that same number in Dorsey Pender's division, which was coming up behind him. But a few pesky Yankee cavalry pickets weren't a problem that would require shaking out a major battle line, so Heath kept his division in column of march, there on the Chambersburg Pike, as just ahead the Confederate skirmishers slowly but steadily worked their way forward, firing their muzzle-loading muskets. The dismounted Federal cavalry troopers stubbornly resisted the advance of the rebel skirmishers, firing back with their single-shot breech-loading carbines. The Yankees' weapons had a faster rate of fire, but the Confederate infantry's rifled muskets held the edge in range. Man-for-man firepower might have been comparable, but the rebels had a great many more men, and that meant they kept shoving the Union troopers farther and farther back toward town. For the blue-clad cavalrymen, it was a hard fight. For the Confederate infantry, it was routine skirmishing. An hour and a half went by, as did a mile and a half of Pennsylvania countryside. About 9 a.m., archer skirmishers topped out on a ridge, which was really just another of the gradual slopes which was typical of this gently rolling landscape. However, here, beside the road, near the crest, stood a tavern owned by a man named Frederick Herr, whose name also stuck to the ridge line, Herr's Ridge. As the rebel skirmishers topped Herr's Ridge, a wide, shallow valley opened out in front of them, through which flowed the brush and briar-choked course of a small stream called Willoughby Run. 
The Confederates could see that on the far side of the valley, the better part of a mile away, rose a similar swell of ground called McPherson's Ridge, and on that ridge line, Buford had drawn up his main battle line, supported by a battery of six guns, which was all the artillery he had. Immediately, the intensity of the fight began to increase as the Confederate skirmishers pressed forward. Buford heavily reinforced his own skirmish line down in the brush of Willoughby Run. The Union cannon, Lieutenant John Caleb's Battery B, 2nd U.S. Artillery, opened up, as did the Confederate guns from Major Willie Pegram's Artillery Battalion, perhaps 17 rebel pieces against the half-dozen Federal cannon. Soon, a more or less continuous thunder of artillery was mingling with the crackle of small arms fire. Harry Heath now faced the fact that no skirmish line was going to move these stubborn Yankees out of the way. He knew he'd have to deploy a regular line of battle, and that would take time. So Heath had Pegram cover his front with an artillery bombardment, while he deployed the 1,200 Tennesseans and Alabamans of Archer's Brigade south of the Chambersburg Pike, and the 1,700 Mississippians and North Carolinians of Joseph Davis's brigade north of the road. Sometime between 9.30 and 10, Heath was finally ready to press ahead once more. Archer's and Davis's brigades were in line of battle, while Pettigrew's and Brockenbrough's brigades were well closed up in support, just back on the reverse or western slope of the ridge, just behind Hur's tavern. Meanwhile, Pegram's guns and the Confederate skirmishers had been giving Buford's overmatched troopers and horse artillery a hot half-hour of it along Willoughby Run and over on McPherson's Ridge. But as Archer's and Davis's brigades started down the front or eastern slope of Hur's Ridge, Pegram's guns fell silent as the friendly rebel infantry blocked their field of fire. However, Caliph's Union cannon on the ridge across the way, were anything but silent as they hammered away harder than ever at the advancing enemy foot soldiers. So gradual was the slope of Hur's Ridge that the Confederate guns couldn't open fire again until the rebel infantry had gone nearly half a mile and was approaching Willoughby Run. Then the ever-combative Willie Pegram had his guns firing again the moment they had a clear shot. In the advancing Confederate line of battle, W.H. Moon of the 13th Alabama in Archer's Brigade expressed the Universal Infantryman's feelings about friendly artillery fire. Moon remembered the shells, quote, whizzing just above our heads, and thought it, quote, the sweetest music I've ever heard. Archer's and Davis's Confederates were soon hotly engaging Buford's thin line of dismounted troopers. The rebels once again had a substantial advantage in numbers, and their battle line stretched beyond both of Buford's flanks. As the Confederates began to exert increasing pressure all along the line, Caliph's guns became threatened. On the lieutenant's orders, the crews limbered up and headed for the rear, subtracting desperately needed firepower from Buford's defense. The hard-pressed Union cavalrymen began to give ground, and it was clear their line couldn't hold very much longer. John Buford knew that all too well. His men, tough veterans from Illinois, 
West Virginia, Indiana, New York, and Pennsylvania had done all he had asked of them, but Buford knew time was quickly running out. All he could do now was hope that help, in the form of federal infantry, would arrive in time to save Gettysburg and its important road junctions, and take advantage of the good defensive terrain south of town. Help was on the way, about halfway between Buford's line on McPherson's Ridge and the town of Gettysburg stood the Lutheran Theological Seminary, and from the vantage point of the cupola atop the old dorm building, Buford's signal officer, Lieutenant Jerome, had spotted the head of an approaching column of Union infantry marching up the Emmitsburg Road from the south. Shortly thereafter, John Reynolds arrived in person. George Meade had entrusted Reynolds with the Army of the Potomac's left wing, comprised of Reynolds' own 1st Corps, as well as Howard's 11th and Sickles' 3rd. Buford was in the cupola when Reynolds rode up to the seminary grounds. After greeting one another, the two generals rode out to McPherson's Ridge to look over Buford's position and assess the situation. What John Reynolds saw there was enough to convince him he would fight here, but also impress upon him that he would have to hurry if he were to get the men of his first corps up in time to save Gettysburg. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey, not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War.
I reckon I can. After the campaign was over, John Buford would sum up the performance of his horse soldiers on July 1, 1863, by saying, quote, A heavy task was before us. We were equal to it, and shall remember with pride that at Gettysburg we did our country much service. On the morning of July 1st at Gettysburg, what Buford asked of his men was no brandy station, that is, no relentless, thundering saber charges by two mounted opponents. Instead, the federal tactics here called for measured, deliberate resistance that traded ground for time. And John Buford and his command pretty much perfectly executed those tactics. As we talked about previously on the podcast, the last orders that Buford had received directed him to proceed to Gettysburg to, quote, cover and protect the front, end quote. And that's precisely what John Buford did on the morning of July 1st. A month after the battle, in August, in his report, Buford indicated that his decision to fight at Gettysburg was motivated by his desire, quote, to prevent the enemy from getting the town before our army could get up, end quote. Buford then went on to state that, quote, my arrangements were made for entertaining him, that is the enemy, until General Reynolds could reach the scene, end quote. Buford, a seasoned soldier, had sensed Gettysburg's strategic significance as the two armies moved toward one another. The road network converging on Gettysburg from all points of the compass made it an ideal point for either army to concentrate, and Buford didn't fail to notice the commanding terrain just south of town. Whoever held that ground would have a significant advantage in any battle. After Buford's arrival in Gettysburg on June 30th, his scouts were active, roaming the countryside, gathering intelligence. And so, by 10.30 p.m. that night, Buford had assembled a remarkably clear picture of Confederate dispositions. He knew A.P. Hill's corps was, quote, massed just back of Cashtown, while Longstreet's corps was behind Hill, and Yule's corps was north of Gettysburg, although its location hadn't been precisely fixed. Picket posts gave Buford eyes on every possible approach to Gettysburg from the west, north, and east. Buford expected the enemy would be back on July 1st. But on the evening of the 30th, as he made his plans, Buford knew that Reynolds and his first corps were marching to Gettysburg the next day. The question was whether Buford and his troopers could hold the town and key terrain until Reynolds arrived. It's important not to exaggerate Buford's accomplishments. He didn't single-handedly win the Battle of Gettysburg for the Union. But what he did do is intelligently assess the situation and terrain and plan the perfect defense to take advantage of the situation and terrain. And then his masterful execution of that defensive scheme on the morning of July 1st, delaying the Confederate advance, went a long way toward helping shape the conditions that made a federal victory at Gettysburg more likely. As Eric Wittenberg makes clear in his book, The Devils to Pay, 
John Buford at Gettysburg, the textbook defensive scheme that Buford planned and his men carried out at Gettysburg is properly called a covering force action. Wittenberg explains that, quote, The idea behind a covering force action is to trade time for space, thereby allowing a detached forward unit, usually cavalry, to delay the advance of the enemy long enough to permit the main body to come up and engage. The covering force operates independently of the main body. A careful analysis of the tactical scheme John Buford designed and implemented at Gettysburg makes it clear that he waged a covering force action. Buford's purpose was to trade three ridgelines worth of space for enough time to permit John Reynolds and the First Corps to come up and engage the enemy. As Wittenberg points out, the, the defensive scheme that Buford designed and implemented at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st is still considered a textbook example of a covering force action and is still regularly taught to West Point cadets and serving U.S. Army officers today. This is where we're going to start to wrap up this episode. And just to let you know, but probably here for a while, we're going to do our best to keep putting out a new episode each week, but they'll be shorter than usual. And that's mostly because, with a nod to Mr. Thomas Paine, we're feeling like these are the times that try men's and women's souls. As we've said, Tracy and I are still working for which we're thankful, but trying to still do our full-time day jobs, especially with one of us working at a healthcare facility, and then dealing with the ever-present stress associated with everyday life during these times, and then still doing the podcast, has left us a bit frazzled, is perhaps the best word. So all of that's to say that we talked about it, And for our own mental health and well-being, we decided it would be best not to keep trying to put the same amount of time and energy into the podcast that we normally do. That means we'll still aim to release a new episode each week, but they'll be shorter shows. So that's all we've got to say about that for now, and we thank you in advance for your understanding. Next week, we'll talk about John Reynolds' decision to commit to a fight at Gettysburg, and we'll see the leading elements of the First Corps arrive quite literally in the nick of time. They're just outside of town. As we were putting this episode together and looking forward to the next show, we were thinking how altogether fitting and appropriate it is that if you visit Gettysburg today, you'll find there just outside town along the Chambersburg Pike, the statues of John Buford and John Reynolds, standing right there practically next to one another. And it's appropriate because on the Union side, these are the two general officers whose decision-making resulted in a battle being fought at Gettysburg starting on July 1st. When you visit Gettysburg, if you go out to visit these two statues, which we encourage you to do, well, be careful crossing the road, but then you'll find John Buford's statue standing vigilantly watching westward, just as he did that July morning in 1863. 
And then a stone's throw away is the impressive John Reynolds equestrian statue, which as you stand there, you can think about how it's a veritable engineering marvel, since although horse and rider weigh over 9,000 pounds, they're balanced on the pedestal with just two hoofs. So, there you go. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, Sentinels of Stone by Timothy T. Isbell. There are some fantastic photographs in this book, over 80 of them, of statues, monuments, and other features of the battlefield. And the photos and accompanying commentary are a great way not just to tell the story of the battle, but capture the beauty of the battlefield, if we can say that a battlefield is beautiful. But hopefully you know what we mean. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then a quick but heartfelt thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Evan, Rune, Adam, and Jessica. And thanks also to David Kay for his donation this past week. We'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.